0: Today in the priority queue discussion about a book. What book? Mastering Python Networking by Eric Chow. Eric is the author at blog.pythonneteng.com, and we've got Eric on the show today. Now, lest you think Eric wants you to buy his book so that he can buy a Ferrari, Eric is donating all proceeds from the book to charity.
1: Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ethan. It's just so great to be here. I've been I've been listening to your show, your various podcasts for years, and uh, it just kind of feels a bit surreal to me. Also, thanks for mentioning the uh, the charity bid. So. There's two reasons behind that. So one is that Tor, the second half of writing the book, I actually came across a blog post by Kenneth Reitz, who's the creator of the Python request package. I noticed that he's donating all of his, the proceeds of his book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Python to uh, Django Girls, which I thought was great. So I thought, hey, I could do the same. And so I'm donating, donating all the proceeds to various charities. And the second reason was that, you know, I wanted to show appreciation for the people who helped make this book a a reality. So my name might be on the cover of the book, but it's actually a team effort from the editors at Pack Publishing to my tech writer, tech reviewer, Alan Sue and Rich Groves, who wrote the foreword. So, you know, by the end of writing that book, you know, I asked them to pick a charity and I donate the proceeds to to the charities that they pick. So there's two reasons behind that. And thanks for mentioning it.
0: Yeah, I get what you're saying about uh, writing a book being a team effort. I've contributed to a book here that should be coming out in early 2018. The tech writers, the people that review, the editors, and so on. Yes, you're, the as the author, doing the bulk of the work, but there's so many other people involved that are required to to bring a book to life. It's great to be able to acknowledge them. Well, Eric, before we jump into the specifics about your book, I want to back up a step. Talk about some of the automation and maybe SDN kind of stuff that's been on my mind. Just pick your brain since, uh, well, you wrote a book, man, yeah, so you're an expert, right? So.
1: <laughs> Partly, but <laughs> uh, but I'll try to, you know, share with my opinion and kind of just talk about other topics and uh, go for it. So let's start off uh, this way. Compare software-defined networking and
0: automation. You know, the way the verbiages come down these days, are they the same thing? Have they become the same thing?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I agree that it's getting kind of confusing nowadays to, to talk about SDN, software defined networking and, and automation. But I do agree that most people, when they talk about SDN, at least a large chunk of what they meant is just automation, right? Your config management and you're uh, getting the network to a state that you define as gold. Yeah, I would agree that they're kind of converging. But me personally define SDN or, uh, as in, I guess I'm old school. So I define it as kind of this open flow definition where you're separating the control and data plane. Yeah, so, you, you're
0: you definitely old school if you go with that definition because marketing took that one and said, nah, it needs to mean a lot more than that and then went and r- <laughs> running with it. But, but yeah, fair, that, fair enough. Right. Separation of control and data plane, uh, outboard controller uh, that can then program you know, that data plane. So sure, fair enough.
1: Yeah, and also... Alan Greenberg does a, a fantastic job of doing this, of you know trying to morph software-defined uh, from uh, Azure networking, is that he's always talking about SDN, but what he meant was software-driven networking. So I guess that's another way of looking at it where you just have the same SDN acronym, but you're saying instead of software-defined, software-driven. But you know, you're right. So I think at the end of the day, the OpenFlow movement brought the SDN term to the table, and now we know that OpenFlow is probably more of a niche- Market than appealing to the general public. Since it puts software on the map, it helps us to get off, like I guess move away from hardware and into software, where it's more about business agility, you know, change velocity and you know, kind of avoid a vendor Mm -hmm. lock in. So that's what I would would kind of look at that term. I know it's a it's a lengthy answer for a simple question, but that's how I look at between SDN and network automation.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you delineate that there is still some kind of a difference because I think that there is, and it's important to understand that there is a difference in those terms uh, because they get conflated, you know, all too often. Still, they're just thrown around almost, almost as if they're the same thing when in fact there's uh, there's some important differences there. So, yeah. All right, so so let's let's poke at uh, at network automation a little more deeply. You know, we we say sure. network automation often, right? That's a term a lot of people talk about. Network automation, as if we all know what we're talking about. Um, th- What does that actually mean? Do we actually mean uh, programmatic configuration of network devices? Is that how you'd equate it? Uh, Yes or no?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly what most people meant when they first think about network automation. I look at it as, as this is the same approach I took for the book writing process of this particular book, is that I look at it as kind of a funnel where at the very top, or like an inverse pyramid, like at the very top end, you have these methods for people to automate programmatic configuration network devices, changing of states. And the way to change state would be to use the configuration to change the state. So that's at the very top of the section of that funnel. In the middle layer, that's a less appeal to less people, but still quite a bit of people who's using these programmatic configuration to do you know, security monitoring. And such, and at the very bottom of that funnel is where people use the, what I would define as the SDN and the OpenFlow bits, where they use these a very particular control plane stuff to manipulate their network functions. So I look at it kind of this programmatic configuration network devices at the very top and uh, just kind of funnels down. And the thing appeals to less and less people as you move down that funnel.
0: Because there's more and more uh, c- complexity, or it's more difficult to apply as you move down that funnel. It's one thing to use automation techniques to to make a configuration change versus all the way at the bottom of the funnel, the way you described it, full blown software defined networking that could be making progress. Yeah,
1: it's just, they just don't need it. You know, if you look at people from the enterprise world, I would say they don't really need a open flow network, right? In fact, that's probably why it hasn't taken off because it doesn't appeal to the enterprise market. But they still could use automation to. You know, uh, just pragmatically change network devices so it's consistent. It's not; it doesn't have the same mistakes that people typically associate with. The computers don't get tired, and so on and so forth. So, I would say just because it, it less people need it, need that specialized of a control over your network, and that's why it's it's kind of in this this funnel that I look at.
0: Well, I want to move the conversation ahead to to interfaces. When we talk about programming the network, we're talking about typically sending commands uh, against some kind of an API, but there's no standard interface to configure network devices, kind of like you know, CLIs tend to vary from device to device. So w- what do you think of the challenge of different vendors having different APIs and there's different levels of documentation for those, a- those APIs and there's different
1: formats that they offer their data in and, uh, and so yeah, on? Yeah, I think that's a... That's a real bummer. I mean, <laughs> it's really a time waste to, to learn about different ways to achieve the same thing. And I think that's part of some other projects like Yang is trying to resolve that, is to having a, a standardized uh, interface to act on. You know, for me, I think there's a short-term resolution and also a long-term solution. So in the short term, I think from the places I've been at, is that we usually meet that challenge by having just a dual vendor uh, in the environment where we have two vendors, so we don't always get into a vendor lock-in, and at the same time, we're not spreading ourselves really thin by learning about five different ways to configure BGP. So I think the short-term answer is that, and this is the approach that a lot of companies do, is just to have a dual vendor solution. So at least you're only learning two ways. And I think the long-term, we're gonna we're getting into this, this era of Ansibles and Salt and the Yang model, and so on. So I think eventually we're going to have this framework, not saying which one, but we're going to have a framework that settles on a common denominator of the most common used functions, interfaces, routing protocols, and so on. But yet that framework will also allow the vendors or the customer to utilize the unique features of that particular box. So I think eventually that's what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, a, a common baseline that maybe uh, all devices will adhere to. We, we've talked about this on the show before. Kind of like SNMP yeah, and exactly. MIB two was common to a lot of devices, but then you got all these these additional uh, MIBs and OIDs that are unique uh, to devices. So, so right, I uh, see what you're saying there. Probably common interface that will work for everything. The IETF or the Open Config, someone that's going to drive, and then special things beyond that because all our devices are special snowflakes <laughs> that do
1: special things. Yeah, so, and so, so we want like, to have our, an API that can fully exploit those And like those you guys things. have covered previously on the show is that that SNMP model didn't work out too well, right? Because the, the V2 will have just very, very limited. Like that become just a, such a small subset and everybody's cramming into their enterprise MIP. You know, even though we think something should fit into the standard, that they're still cramming into the enterprise map. So I think the difference this time around of having that of avoiding that problem is that now we have the big customers that's getting involved. Uh, previously maybe just just kind of this the standardizing between the vendors in which they don't work too well with each other. But now that we have the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons and and so on, and Microsoft's to be involved, that I think this time we might have a better Compromise between you know what is standard versus what is you know as you said snowflakes and special sauce that each vendors have, which which is understandable, yeah. right? Like I mean, people buy a particular vendor's bot because of this special sauce, and we want them to utilize that. Otherwise, they don't justify that you know like 500k POs that they just spend on top of the other vendor. But you know, at the same time, I, I think it's a it's a balance act there. Considering
0: normalizing interface, man, what's your thought about the Napalm project? You
1: know, I think it's a, I think it's a great project, and personally, I have not gotten involved with uh, the project too much because uh, in my day job, I, I work for a vendor, and I think uh, the Napalm project, you, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and like I said, you know, I haven't gotten involved, so I'm, it may be just misguided or just my ignorance there, but I think the project itself is trying to normalize, to a certain extent, everything so for example, I remember years ago when I asked people about, hey, what do you like Juniper over Cisco? And I don't know if this is your experience, but they usually just say, hey, you know, I love the commit, the commit rollbacks and and so on. So I think the Napalm project actually tried to make that feature applicable to everything, including traditional iOS devices, right? So they make it so that the, the commits and the commit rollbacks are available on iOS devices. But that takes away. Uh, like I said, it's a balancing act. You got to allow the vendors to express the uniqueness. And the Napalm project goes further out into the normalization realm. I think most of the people who are deeply involved are customers versus the vendors. And in this sense, that um, you know, I just haven't been, I just haven't been involved as much because it doesn't allow the yeah. vendor to express the uniqueness. Go ahead.
0: No, well, I no that that's fair. I get that from uh, especially from a vendor right. perspective, and, and well, this is an ongoing challenge for for automation, right? If you're an end user, if you're a consumer of network devices, and you're writing scripts for right. automation, you don't really want to have to care about uh, vendor differentiation. You in fact want everything to be the same as right. much as possible. And yet, from the vendor perspective, they're like, well. No, because <laughs> because because they want that. Right? It was we were talking about a little yeah. bit earlier that you know, the special sauce, and they want to expose all the things that make their platform unique because that's how they differentiate. And if from a vendor perspective, if everything became the same. I guess we'd all just be buying, you know, whatever was the cheapest, and then it's a race to the bottom. And who wants to be in that business? You know, from a vendor perspective, yeah. I get it. And also, um, but 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 I mean, but but Napalm does, you know, address the, the complexities by abstracting away some of those uh, differences and distinctions in the underlying interface, trying to make things more homogenous so that you've got uh, you know, scripts that are are portable. Yeah.
1: No. Totally. So it's a, it's a great project. I think it's a, it's just a balancing act, and if they could move toward the middle a yeah. little bit, a lot more people would would want to get involved, such as myself, and um, and also hmm. I think if you're and, and to me it also is another abstraction layer. So you're talking about using like Napalm with Ansible mod, uh, Napalm dash Ansible module, Napalm dash Salt module. For me, I rather use something like just so for example, if I use Ansible. And uh, and the module actually comes from the vendor. There's only one layer of abstraction, which is Ansible. And if I need to troubleshoot and get closer to the hardware, I could just look at that module versus I have to look at NAPalm and then that's uh, going one level down into the hardware itself. So those are the two kind of the two reasons. One, but like I said, I I think it's a great project. I think a lot of good people are involved in it. Uh, a lot of smart people are involved in it. So, um, yeah. So that's just basically my feelings on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yang Models. We've done a number of shows on Packet Pushes about
0: Yang, where it's at, uh, what it's good for. I've presented on it at Interop in the past. Um, w- what is your opinion on uh, on Yang and the future of Yang Models? <laughs> so,
1: um, I, just, I haven't been involved or looking at the Yang Model that much. I think like a lot of people, I'm kind of standing on the sideline and just keeping up with it, including your show and the various presentations or, or papers that I've seen. I think so far, to me, it, it kind of, um, in my own opinion, I think it's gotten a little bit complicated than what it set out to be. And uh, it might be solving a problem that's using the most elegant solution versus the easiest way, which for me, the easiest way always wins because that's just, it provides the least resistance to, to arrive at that solution. So I haven't been following in that much instead of just, you know, kind of keeping on the sideline, and just looking at it. Data formats. So one of the things I get excited about when we talk about uh, programmatic
0: um, interfaces yeah. and so on is the opportunity to use structured right. data now. So data formats then get interesting. So you got old school XML, you've got YAML for certain applications, you've got JSON. D- do you have a preference of which of these to work, uh, work with? I realize we don't always have a, a choice depending on the API, but... But do do you see them as you know something you can have a preference over? Do you see them as different tools for different purposes? Yeah. So
1: um. So if I have a choice, uh, like you said, sometimes you don't have a choice, like you know that's dictated by the tool that you're using. But if I have a choice, I would definitely choose JSON over YAML and XML, just because uh, JSON maps really well into the the Python Python dictionary uh, type. So it just maps well. It uh, or you know like uh, associate array you might know it as. But um, just because it maps mm-hmm. well into the Python dictionary, though, so that's always my default go-to choice.
0: In other words, when you bring data that was formatted as JSON um, and bring it back into you know the Python script that's right. running, it's the, the ability to implement or uh, the ability to to use that data, leverage that data, maps well into the dictionary type. Um, so, so right, you can reference it and pull the values out in a pretty intuitive yeah, and way. Yeah,
1: and it just ins and outs. And you know, of course, Python provides the standard library which includes JSON, so it's just you know both dumps and loads. So it's both ways that when you're reading into it and when you're writing into a JSON format, it maps really well. So that's why I prefer JSON. Um, and another is another reason uh, for me to dislike XML. Is that I think XML is uh, people who choose XML typically overcomplicate things. You have these parent-child, you have this sibling relationship. Like you know, it just it's, it just gets a bit complicated. Um, just to sort out the relationship for when most of the time you just need like a key-value pair, maybe one level deep into the relationship, or or that's that should be your goal, right? You shouldn't have two, three layers deep of relationship that's nested into each other. You should probably just keep your keep your relationship in just one level deep or, you know, possibly two if you have to. Another programming question.
0: Um, if I, It's one thing to write a script that does something very temporary, and I don't need any any yeah. long-term storage, but there are things you could do where you do want to store data historically, maybe a time series database. What, what do you recommend as a repository for permanent data storage? A SQL database or something else? Yeah,
1: so I don't have a strong opinion either way, and truth be told, I think for the project I've been involved with, which is mainly network, you know, kind of uh, automation kind of a project, there's it doesn't it doesn't really matter um so one thing i'll mention though is you, if you were to use a database you probably want to use some kind of abstraction layer like a SQL alchemy from python and to m- remove your your yourself away from the headache of writing just you know sequel commands like your select stars or whatever that you could uh, just abstract yourself away from it so later on you could and i think now it also supports no database so just re, just save yourself some time use that abstraction layer from the beginning and uh and the short answer is it, i don't think it really matters for most at least in my experience it really matters for most uh most projects that i've been involved with
0: well that that's an interesting recommendation about sql alchemy so you you can tell i haven't done a whole ton of uh, python programming here because uh, i think i've heard of sure. this before but i haven't actually had a reason sure. to use it but okay, so that that is a good recommendation in that I can write my code once and then whatever I want my backend code to be, assuming SQL Alchemy will work with it, it'll do the translation yeah, for and me. And it
1: scales well. So you could start with, like, say, SQLite. And so it's basically just a file on the, on the local drive, right? And later on, if you uh, decided to go into Postgres database or whatnot, then the commands would still. Uh, still be relevant, and you just kind of point your database from your SQLite locally to your Postgres database resides on.
0: Okay. Okay, Python 2 or Python 3? It's been a religious debate for a while, and the last time I talked, most people were like, yeah, Python 2, because a lot of things just kind of don't work in, in, in 3, or the libraries aren't there, or it's too much of a pain in the butt. Is that still the case, or have things moved on? Yeah,
1: you know, I've actually... Uh... You could tell I've thought about this quite a bit, both for the uh, you know network expert classes versus the book versus the until up until now, is uh, if I've actually changed my opinion in the last 12 to 18 months or so. So right now, I think uh, what people uh, going into Python for the first time or they're thinking about going to Python, they should use Python three whenever possible. Unless you have this must-have tool that only supports Python 2, so and that's the same approach that I took with writing the book. Um, in I think it's in the preface that I've mentioned that the book will use Python 3, unless the tool only supports Python 2. So, for example, if in the uh, when I was writing the book, Ansible uh, general release was 2.2, so which only supports Python 2. So. In those two chapters, I revert back to Python 2, but for the rest of the chapters, I've used Python 3, and that's only because there's never going to be a Python 2.8. There's a death, uh, like Python 2 death clock. That's a signaling and and like this neon flashing light hmm. and say, hey, don't use Python 2. All the new and nice features will be only be in Python 3. So therefore, um, I think most of the major frameworks have moved on to Python 3 for at least a year. So, namely Django, Flask, and some of the other libraries. Um, Ansible is kind of a, a late bloomer only because most of their modules are are third-party supplied. So it needs like there's hundreds of them that needs to be migrated over. So um, so yeah, I'm kind of torn on this subject as you could see. But my one-line answer is. Use Python 3 whenever possible, and that's my personal opinion on that. Yeah. Three
0: if you can, two if you must. Yeah. Got it. All right. Um, is the Python code I write 100% portable between uh, or among platforms? Um, it, it's an interpreted language, um, not compiled. Um, so in theory, my Python interpreter means I shouldn't write the same script, and it's it's the same whether I'm on Linux or Mac or Windows. Is that True or not? So, unfortunately,
1: no. <laughs> so, you, but mostly is uh, mostly you have to deal with the differences on the underlying OS um, and also the extension libraries that you use. So uh, I'll give you an example. So for example, you know, Windows and Mac uh, represent, and for that matter, Linux represents file directory differently with forward and backward slashes. So that, um, unless you you know use the standard library to import your OS module or your file system module, that you have to deal with uh, kind of that, those syntactical differences of the underlying OS that you can't get away from. Um, and also if you're using... Um, some kind of third-party library outside of the standard library, such as, um, I know cryptography uh, gives a lot of uh, headache to people who are running on Windows versus uh, Linux and Mac. So those are the kind of things that you have to worry about. For um, But if you're using, uh, to to deal with the uh, you know portability issue, but if you're dealing with just the, the Python installation and using only standard library, there's There's a very good chance that ninety nine percent of your code would just be portable,
0: ok. Uh, and then, okay, right. So it really it's uh, you know think about the differences between platforms you might run this script on linux, mac windows, the the file system and so on. And then you're going to find a few changes uh, that are required in your script. But by and large, uh,
1: it is it is portable. yeah. so I mean, and also in this day yeah. of age, um of you know VMs and containers and all these environments that, are, that you could standardize yeah. on, I mean, chances are just so, you know, I mean, I, I think my my friends at Microsoft would hate me for this, but I'm just going to say, like, go standardize on Linux, right? <laughs> it's just, for right. Me, I was just, in <laughs> fact, standardize on one flavor of Linux, right? If you're like Ubuntu, stick with Ubuntu, at least in the beginning when you're learning new stuff or when you're starting out a project, you don't want to have too much variables. You want to keep those those things as constant as possible and only worry about, what you you're doing something new with right your code or your functionality your features or whatnot and standard, just eliminate all the other variables uh, such as your underlying os or flavors or linux
0: yeah fair enough i don't think they dislike you that much for saying that <laughs> in, you know in that so like even microsoft starting to port things like powershell and uh, and so on over to linux Oh, be coming Certainly, a much more Linux. Oh, friendly totally. Place. Like even
1: even so, um, so, when I was working at Microsoft, even within the the corporate environment, we have uh, you know Unix servers that are running for some of the tasks. So for sure, you know, I was just joking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let's say I don't want to have to run scripts in my local workstation for whatever my reasons are, um, and I want to think of alternatives. So of course, you could just have a you know a VM running in your data center, right. and you could run run something there, like standardizing on Linux, as you put it, just stand up a. You know Fedora or okay. Ubuntu or whatever your choice is and, and run them there. You right. could do that. Um, but what about more novel solutions? Like, um, could I run my scripts in public cloud somewhere? Uh, maybe a Raspberry Pi that I want to carry around with me, and you know, plug it into a network. I'm doing some work on. Are those possibilities? Well, you
1: know, I think for for me, you know, you you still need to solve for IP reachability. So most of the time, when you're talking to the physical box, you're talking through the management network, and so those are uh, typically private. So if you're using the public cloud, you know obviously you have to you know kind of uh, poke a hole in your firewall or you know having some mm-hmm. kind of a, a solution to that. So if you're solving that with uh, either like the Azure Express route or AWS Direct Connect or some kind of VPN solution for you, then as long as you have reachability, I don't see an issue of running this either on-prem or off-prem, but you do have to solve for IP reachability. So Okay,
0: so assuming we've solved for IP reachability and we're using public cloud, would that look like a VM stood up as an EC2 instance, or is there some kind of native Python interpreter I can get from Amazon or whoever without having to load up a full VM? Yeah, you know,
1: that's kind of interesting. So I've recently uh, worked on projects where i I've used Lambda functions for as much as I could. You could, in theory, just have all of your management scripts uh, living as Lambda functions. But I think there's a certain kind of limitation. For example, in order to morph your Lambda function into be able to talk to your VPC, like instance running your VPC, or your VPC that has the... Uh, uh, AWS Direct Connect or your physical network, you still have to, you know, kind of specify. I think there's two items you need to specify. One is the security group, and one is the uh, VPC ID or something like that. So it's still not as straightforward. If you want a uh, sort of a serverless, I think that's what you alluded to, though, a serverless solution. Yeah. yeah versus yeah. a yeah. VM, where you know you just kind of still have to worry about patching, still have to worry about all the other things associated with a VM. But it's getting there. I don't think it's there yet. So the easiest way is still having some kind of VM residing. I mean, to me, if I were to fire up something tomorrow to manage my network, I would still go for like a VM as opposed to a public cloud. Uh, I mean, VM on-prem as opposed to a public cloud or some kind of serverless function. But you know, I'm a big fan of Lambda. And I think if you could use it and it fits your needs, go for it. It, it will get there one day.
0: And if you're if you're in the audience listening to this show and you're not familiar with like uh, AWS Direct Connect or serverless uh, Lambda functions in AWS, look at PacketPushers.net and at the Datanaut show and do a search through there. We've done shows on AWS networking. We've talked about serverless in a few episodes if you uh, need some background on that. So, uh, Eric, going back to the question here about where I can run scripts, is,
1: is Raspberry Pi an option here for Python? Yeah, you know, that's what I was going to say. Um, so... It is, and the a lot of people don't know the pi, even though it's spelled pi. It's actually uh, it's actually stands for Python. So out of the box, I think it, it, yeah, oh, I even up that. actually. That's cool. Oh, so the Raspberry naming because anything that's worth a darn is named after fruits. So like apple or you know so on so forth. So it's written yeah. after Raspberry, <laughs> right. and Pi is actually not. Not the, the you know the radius of a circle, but it's uh, uh, stands for Python. So right out of the box, it actually supports Python. It's a first-class citizen on Raspberry Pi. Um, I am totally just ever since it came out, I'm just a huge fan of of the little box that could. Right. So I was very excited to meet Ethan Upton in person at the at the Microsoft Hackathon in 2015. And um, I'm just, I mean, I want to do everything on that box. So definitely you could run like a small DHCP server. You could run uh, Python. Uh, I think two for sure. I want to say 3.4 maybe, but two two 2.7 for sure. And you could just, just make a full-blown server out of it. Um, so I think, in fact, when Arista first came out with their, uh, uh, what is it, PowerRound provisioning, that that I actually ran it on the Raspberry Pi and then uh, having as a DHCP server, push that Python script down and so on. So it, it works really, really well. So it just, unfortunately, I mean, I really want to try it out in production, but I just haven't been able to convince anybody in, in <laughs> to let me do that
0: <laughs> well, it's it's amazing how powerful the Pi platform is. Now we're in the third generation uh-huh. now. And even the Gen one, I was using it to actually run uh, Chromium, which is kind of a you know a, a shrunk down version of right. Google Chrome with and do uh, high-end network right. monitoring on a network monitoring platform that was loading all kinds of components. And it was very, powerful enough to use that without it being a big deal. I was just amazed at how much, uh, you know, graphics rendering, just raw power that little system had. And that was a Gen 1. Now we're up to the Gen 3s. And uh, I've got, uh, I just got my Kubernetes up and running book uh, shipped to me. I pre-ordered it and they just shipped it. And the appendix in that is how to build a four-node Kubernetes cluster out of raspberry Pis, uh, raspberry pi gen threes so i mean you really can do a lot with the yeah platform. and
1: also if you look at the raspberry pi w um it's only it's a five dollar like small like even smaller than gen one right so if you so hmm. that's only five bucks and if you spend you know a whopping five dollar more you could actually get the w with both a wi-fi and bluetooth and uh, so that's that's just awesome, right? <laughs> you know, I'm just <laughs> head over here over it. Like I want to build my whole new cluster of Raspberry oh. Pi if I could. Um, but of course, I think um, so. When my friends ask me about the the recommendation, here's why I would tell them: I say. Go prototype your thing, whatever you want to do, off a of Raspberry Pi 3 first because it's got that HDMI interface. So you could just hook up to your monitor and keyboards with. Yes. And then definitely. once you get that working, optimize it for the W where it does not have a native. Uh, it, it's got a micro USB, I think. So you need an adapter to do it. But start your prototype with the three, and then optimize it for W because that's you know one third of the cost and eventually and footprint too. So. Yeah. So that's why I would say, but they're, they're awesome. They're really awesome.
0: Well, Eric, let's get into the book itself. Now, I, I again, I, I said at the top of the show, I talked a little bit about my own book writing experience. I, I got
1: to ask you what motivated you to write this thing? Because writing books is hard. I mean, and you're not even keeping any of the royalties. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so one of the main reasons the the writing a book is on my bucket list. So, um, you know, I, I've always wanted to write a book, and my my dad, uh, before he passed away, he 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 wrote two books. So the two writing two books is always uh, always on my radar. And so like one down, one to go. Um, and also the second thing is I want to help people in my shoe to avoid the mistakes that I've made. Um, hmm. So I think if we, if we look at a macro point of view in the network engineering field. I think the network engineering, uh, network engineer job as we know today, is not going to exist five years later, maybe even sooner. Um, I mean, of course I said that like five years ago, but <laughs> it's slowly <totally> happening. I, <laughs> I see it happening. Um so I'm from the Pacific Northwest and because of where I've been to, I have friends in you know Alibaba Cloud and in you know Ali Cloud and in you know Azure AWS and uh, Oracle bare metal. Uh, cloud, so I've already seen that trend going. Is that these network engineering job is no longer just uh, just understanding the CLI. I mean, for people who we still need people who understand CLI, but the number of jobs that requires that as a as a fundamental skill is going to shrink dramatically in the next few years. So me as myself, I think it's kind of this race of just you know, come on guys, like these you know, let's just go and learn this stuff so we keep our skills relevant. And me, myself, when I started out five, six years ago, there was no book like this. And I've had my share of of bumping, you know, banging my head in the walls and, and just trying out stuff only to discover that it's not the best tool. So at least I wanted to put down this experience and say, this is the book that I wish I had when I started. And this may not be the best solution, but at least it's not the worst. So if you need to start somewhere, like if you need to use Python to... You know, generate a, a graph or two. Here's the two libraries that I find useful, and start with those. And you you may not end up with those, but at least start with those, and to to save yourself some headache later on. So that's the 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 main reason of me writing that book. This is the book I wish I had uh, a couple of years ago.
0: Well, that that is the you start getting into trying to choose which is the right yeah. library, and you get you get an endless. List of these libraries that all look like they do about the same thing, and you start parsing through documentation, trying to figure out, well, the way they express uh, their certain commands. Does this work for me or not? When's the last time it was maintained? And you just spend a lot of time trying to pick a tool – that you can actually, you, know, you spend half, you spend more time looking for the tool than you do writing code. Yeah, instead of <laughs> worrying
1: about the stuff that you should be doing, that you should spend the majority of your time on, you're going out just almost in circles, right? Like, So I'll give you an example. So when I started out, when I wanted to write my own API, I actually tried Web2Pi and Django and uh, Pyramid and eventually settle on flask but what if i could just somebody i wish somebody came out and say uh, i mean these are all fantastic tools and they all have their share of fans and if you go on um what is it halfframeworks.com that you could see these are all in the top uh i want to say top 30 of frameworks right all of everything i mentioned and but they may not be the best uh, at doing what network automation and and just you know, so anyways, so that's what I meant. I mean, I think we're on the same page here. It's just that I wish somebody told yeah. me that that from somebody who's done it before it, he found Flask to be the most useful and start with that rather than go to web Two Pi and Django and Pyramid. Right. and then, oh, you know, there's this thing called Flask. Oh, awesome, yeah,
0: yeah, okay. So if I'm considering buying this book what what sort of environments uh is this book aimed at um so if maybe I work in a private data center. Maybe I am in a hybrid cloud environment. Maybe I work in a campus. Um, where does this book best
1: fit? Sure. So I think um, the first nine chapters are applicable to all network environments. And like what, what we get into in the beginning of the show, where it's uh, to me, it's sort of like a funnel, right? You always... Um, the top layer would be applicable to most network environments, and as you go down, it's less and less. So the first nine chapters are uh, covering, you know, your express script when you need to interact with something that's is screen scraping to a sort, and you know, it deals with APIs, securities, monitorings, and Ansibles. As you move down, you know, chapter ten and thirteen, uh, it's pretty focused on SDN and my definition of SDN, which is OpenFlow. So that's uh-huh. less applicable to to people, I think. But the first night chapters is pretty much uh, you could probably find some value in the first night chapters. And of course For for sure. And then and well, and then the, the other chapters. It's not that
0: they're not valuable, but I think the people that have leveraged SDN and, and perhaps OpenFlow specifically are going to be more you know, larger shops, maybe service providers that are getting into their SDN rollouts, uh, really big enterprises perhaps with large data centers. That exactly. Kind of thing?
1: And because the book is a reflection of my own experience. And my experience being heavily uh, geared towards service provider in large cloud data centers, so I would say obviously, you know, it influenced the uh, the contents that I write uh, for sure. So, um, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. Is probably mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, exactly, exactly. Well,
0: I mean, to me, the, the the summary is it's good for everybody. Now, whether you know the last four chapters are explicitly applicable to your environment or not is another question. But no matter what, you're going to learn something valuable. Uh, uh, from from the entirety Hopefully. of the book. So. <laughs> now, okay, so along those lines, you've got a TCPIP intro in the book, which kind of threw me. It's like, <laughs> what were you trying to get done with that? Because, I mean, I, I'm going to assume it, you still got to know something about networking to make sense out of the book. I don't think that means I can be a complete network newbie and, uh, you know, be jumping right into network automation. So so what was the, you know, the intro to communications fundamentals? What what really was that all about? What were you
1: trying to get yeah, done so, with that? You know, um, yeah, so I think that the introductory chapter is really just meant so that people don't feel they're jumping into a deep end right away in chapter one. I mean, that chapter was actually half uh, like just this, this really brushstroke TCP IP intro and half of this brushstroke of introductory to like different Pythons, Python, you know, types and loops and so on and so forth. So it's really just a, a kind of a stepping stone for you to go into the, the chapters. I mean, it feels really weird to jumping right away to say, to talk about peaks spec and, and expect about, you know, Cisco CLIs and so on and so forth. So, you know, I don't know if people feel the same way, but, you know, at least for me, the purpose is just really to let people be more comfortable in the environment before the, and, and the style of writing and, you know, my tone in the book and so on before they dive into this particular topics.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's level yeah. setting
1: then is really, you're,
0: you're setting a platform for what you're going to build the rest yeah, of the book on. That's a good on. term to, yeah. to put it in for sure. I get it. I get it. I get it. All right. So the title of the book, Mastering Python Networking, there's Ansible uh, involved in this book as well. So what is it that Ansible is doing for me that I can't do writing Python scripts alone? It can save
1: you time. So I think that's a short, short answer for that. It could save you tons and tons of time. It's just like, if I if I feel like fish today, you know, feel like eating fish for lunch today, I don't go out and catch my fish. I want to, you know, outsource that to people who are really good at catching that fish and who are really good at cooking that fish and bring it to me. And I'm happy to, you know, just uh, spend a little bit of my resources in this day's money to get that fish. So I think if you uh, look at Ansible as a framework, all the modules are come from either people who are very familiar with the the uh, APIs of the device or are very familiar with the CLI of the device and you just have to worry about this, uh, back to that common denominator that we talk about, your YAML format or this specific constructs for rows and and templates that uh, that it's applicable to all the devices. So we normalize on the Ansible framework and we outsource the, the nitty-gritty, the interaction with the devices to other people. So at the end of the day, it saves you time. Say if you're you know getting into this new box that uh, you never touched before so at least you get up and running and uh, get it to a certain point where you could start using it instead of having this long and steep learning curve before uh, before you get the first you know packet to pass through that box oh no no i was just going to say that there was also a time when um so ansible is obviously so i've asked this a lot right because i'm a big fan of ansible and actually i have to fight to get these chapters into the book um, the editors at, at Pact were telling me that this is a Python-focused book, so why, why are we talking about Ansible? But I feel pretty strongly about uh, having this, this, these two chapters in as a value to the reader that um, I've actually changed the title a little bit. So if you notice, I've actually say Python events frameworks <laughs> or something down that line just to make it a more Python theme. But, um, but I think Ansible as a framework is something that at least we could all agree on and move forward with. I remember there was a time every couple of years at NADAC, like some service provider would come on stage and say, "Hey, we come up with this new and hot, improved thing to help with network automation." And that's all great, but the problem is it sounded very much like the four other tools that that came before it. So why don't we just go make those better? <laughs> you know. So I, so Ansible <laughs> may not be perfect and is by no means easy to work with. I mean, whatever your opinion is, right? But at least it's something that a lot of us could agree on. So let's all build on this instead of reinventing the wheel and move forward with it. So that is, you know, that is my thoughts on that. And that is why I insist on on having two chapters on Ansible put into the book. So at least people who picked up the book could know the basics of Ansible and see how it's relevant for network automation.
0: Well, I don't think anybody would disagree with you on uh, on the argument you're making there in favor of Ansible as a framework to work with. In that, uh, I know uh, some of the guys at network to code yep. Jason Edelman's yep. company, they certainly have talked about Ansible. Um, Ivan Peplnyak's got a, a webinar, I believe, on Ansible over at IPSpace.net, and then... Uh, Kirk Byers is teaching an yeah. Ansible course that he started yeah, up this I, fall.
1: I, uh, um, I took Kirk's class, the the paid one, uh, and I think I started with the free one and the paid one. So I would highly recommend that class. I mean, he does a very good job of explaining things and uh, making things relevant. So yeah, highly re- everybody you mentioned, great. You know, met Jason at Ansible Fest this year and uh, Kirk uh, through the, his course content. So yeah, highly recommend it, all of them.
0: Next question, Eric. Some shops are running highly orchestrated environments. they got tools like OpenStack or Kubernetes. Um, so does this book help me work with those
1: sorts of highly uh, automated, orchestrated uh, environments in some well, way? Well, I guess not as much as somebody who's who could actually write native Python codes. But um, I would imagine that it could probably help with two of the things. One is maybe uh, wrap around the low-level stuff. So in, uh, as I mentioned before in Chapter 9, we talk about using Flask to use APIs for dealing with uh, devices that does not traditionally have APIs built in, such as your traditional iOS devices. So if you were to, in a highly orchestrated environment, that you want to have an API for something that does not have one, so this helps you wrap around those boxes into a, an environment where you could easily talk to your, I guess, orchestrator, and uh, of course, if you if you want to encapsulate that even further into uh, say OpenFlow or whatnot, then you know the last four chapters would probably be a good bet to uh, at least get started with that.
0: Now, now this is kind of a. A, a dorky practical question, but I, I was digging around looking at information on the book. And and a lot of listeners to, to a show like this, they may want to consume the book electronically. PDF or Kindle instead of paper, perhaps. A, any comment on the e-formats and how they came out? Because I know from reading book reviews that there was at least one person who wasn't thrilled with the early EPUB version of <laughs> yeah, the book. Yeah, there's
1: two now. So, I mean, I don't know if you you know, you know talk to other authors then and they're like me. Like I'm just kind of hawking over and like really – Looking at the all, uh, looking at the review. Oh, there's a new review, and uh, you know how many stars is that. And so, so there's definitely people who reflected. That. I need to follow on with Pact on that. I mean, after I saw that review, I actually went back to the log, and they've actually since then they've gen- regenerated the EPUB version and uploaded it. So, I mean, hopefully that's resolved. But, um, I don't know if that has anything to do with the EPUB version two versus EPUB version three. At least for me, when I download the EPUB version, it opens up well on my iBook, and I use iBook version 1.10. So, so at least you know that is somewhat, um, I guess, a, a thought. There is just that it at least it opens up on my on my box. But for sure, you know, I think I think we need to resolve that, and I'll follow up with Pact on that. Um, but as far as the PDF and the and the Kindle version, I don't think people have issues with that. But, uh, if they do, please. Do you know? Do use the customer support, or you know, uh, ping me directly, and I'll, I'll definitely follow up with that.
0: And then, what are the different methods that people can get a hold of the book? Do they have to go to uh, Pack Publishing directly, or what? Are yeah, the so you,
1: it's up to you. You know, you could actually get it at all the traditional outlets, such as Amazon or Pack Publishing. Um, if you're want, if you want to get a print version, if you're more used to that, I would probably recommend get it from the publisher site directly for the same cost. You actually get all the e versions for free. So, you don't have to pay extra for that if you're going to get a print version, anyways. But of course, it's available on, you know, Kindle version on Amazon and uh, on Pat. It's available in EPUB. We talked about that. But at least it's available in EPUB, yeah, yeah. PDF, and uh, MOBI formats. So, I will have a link in the show notes. Uh, thank you. That to, you know, if to have a page where if you uh, don't mind signing up for my email list. For the first ten people who sign up, I will go ahead and submit those ten names to uh, the pack publishing for the uh, review program, which the readers will get a uh, a free ebook version of the book. Um, and uh, so, as a thank you to people who listen to the show, also, um, if you if you're not the first ten t- first ten people who sign up, don't worry. I'll wait a month after the month after the show airs and do do a. Uh, a drawing and notify the person and the person will get a signed copy, a signed print copy from me uh, as a token of uh, thank you as well. Ooh, you're giving stuff I am, away. You know, I know, cool. I wish I could give out more, but uh <laughs> I wish I had the limits. So, So mm-hmm. I will add to that as well. So I think per page that Pat gave me is to submit 10 names. But if there's more people, I'll probably just keep on asking them, hey, can I submit 10 more? Can I submit 10 more? And eventually they'll <laughs> tell me no, right? So until they say no, there's going to be something like fifteen thousand people that download this show, so I strongly suspect ten's going to go fast. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I hope so. And like, um, yeah, I, I really hope so. I, I wish this book would bring you value. I wish, you know, I, I'm hearing um, all the feedbacks, and I take all the feedbacks to heart. So, uh, you know, it's really a work of uh, work of love for me. So, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to see it spreading out to more people and having the the kind of reach that I I wanted to have.
0: So if you're listening and you're interested in that, where uh, maybe you could get a a signed copy of uh, Mastering Python Networking, uh, signed by Eric, the author here that we've been interviewing. We'll have a link at PacketPushers.net. Go find this show. This should be Priority Q135. Just Google around at PacketPushers.net. We got the little search bar there at the top. I said Google around our own site. Weird. <laughs> um, anyway, there's a link in there that Eric's got where you can uh, sign up, get the newsletter, and then be entered to uh, for that drawing to uh, to get the, get a copy of that. And then we've got uh, we've a bunch of other links. Uh, Eric, you've got um, some work that you've done that you've published on GitHub, uh, and there's there's different resources that you've got offered there, and of course a link to your blog. Uh, blog.pythonicneteng.com uh, about the book as well, all of which we'll publish at packetpushers.net.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks very much. I mean, one of the links will be the Q&A if you're ever wonder about, like if you didn't get the answer that you needed, um, uh, you know, people who, when they ask me about, hey, what's, you know, how do you came about the opportunity of writing a book and so on? It's all listed on the q and I also have a blog post on keeping track of the donation that I've made so far to all the charities, just to keep myself accountable. So, those you could actually find it on the links in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for posting them.
0: And thank you for being on the show today, Eric. We appreciate your time sharing your expertise on Python and network automation. And thanks to all of you for listening to Packet Pushers today. This has been a Priority Queue episode. You can find this in many more fine, free technical podcasts, along with our community blog, our industry newsfeed, because yeah, we cover new stuff too. And then we've got a brand new shiny Briefings in Brief. Uh, that is a five-minute podcast series that we've just started where we take briefings we get from vendors, interesting things that they've shared with us, announcements and so on, and then talk about it in a five-minute bite-sized chunk and then publish that as its own feed. You won't get that in the uh, if you're subscribed to the Fat Pipe. It's not going to show up there. you got to subscribe to it separately, uh, but it's there for you. Briefings in Brief, if you Google that. Uh, that will come up or search for it in your favorite podcast directory. And also at PacketPushers.net, the Human Infrastructure Magazine newsletter. Uh, and that's all there for you. And all those things are free. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, like us on Facebook. You can rate us on, uh, on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days. We would appreciate that. Last but not least, remember that too much technology would never be enough.